0: Cambridge 105 Radio is a winner at this year's Community Radio Awards. Silver Community Show of the Year: The Alan Brigham Story. Most of us live in houses that aren't that old, and when we complain about people
1: building on the green belt and people ruining the view from your house by building new houses, actually your house probably ruined the view in somebody else's house when it was originally built.
0: Silver Creative Radio of the Year: The East.
2: Next, you'll be waving banners like those CND marchers in town. Can you hear yourself? Uh, Peter and Sandra will be delinquents on the street. You mark my words. Dad! I haven't even gone out yet.
0: And bronze female presenter of the year, Lee Chambers, woke up in the middle of the night to find my cat with his head in a glass of water. That cannot be the first time. Cambridge 105 Radio, award-winning community radio for the city and South Cambridgeshire.
1: Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio.
2: With Heffers Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since
1: 1876.
0: Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. It's a special focusing on classics for our Christmas show. Our featured guest is Harry Sidebottom, talking about his book The Mad Emperor, Heliogabalus and the Decadence of Rome. We'll also hear from Caroline Vout on her book Exposed, The Greek and Roman Body, and Jan Parker will be chatting about her book The Iliad and the Odyssey, The Trojan War, Tragedy and Aftermath. But Harry, will give you a proper introduction in just a moment. But first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Hi. Ironic, really, isn't it? that we're talking classics for a Christmas show because obviously the period of time that you're talking about they didn't celebrate Christmas but they weren't short of a few gods and uh, traditions and superstitions were they?
2: They had many gods and traditions and they did have Saturnalia which was kind of their version of Christmas.
0: Round about this time, was Yep, it?
2: almost exactly the same time.
0: And why was it classics for you? I mean, you're a professor of classics. What is it about classical culture and uh, society that intrigues you?
2: Well, I was always interested in history, but as a schoolboy, I was more interested in Napoleonic Wars and English Civil War. And then when I was 16, my godfather, who used to be the manager of Bowes & Bowes Bookshop in Cambridge, gave me Robin A. Fox's biography of Alexander the Great for Christmas. And I was terrified by this enormous book. I thought it was way too grown up and way too scholarly for me. But I gave it a go and I absolutely loved it.
0: And what was it about that book?
2: I think it was the personal nature of it. And it's the way it went off on tangents, the digressions. I think it was the digressions and the way he built a whole world out of one story.
0: And it is a time, ancient Rome, ancient Greece, that we continue to be fascinated with. Why is that, do you think?
2: As... Mary Beard often says, Rome and Greece are very good to think with. When you're thinking about the classical world, you can't help but compare and contrast with us at every turn. They did things differently in some ways. In other ways, they're very similar.
0: And we'll hear your first choice of music in just a moment. Is music important to you?
2: Yeah, music is important. I mainly now only listen to music when I'm driving. I'm not a writer who has music playing when I'm writing.
0: And this one is People Are Strange by the Doors. Why this one?
2: The Doors are one of my favourite bands and as with the other two choices uh, my musical taste is stuck quite a long time ago
3: People are strange When you're a stranger Faces look ugly When you're alone
0: That was People Strange" by the Doors, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Harry Sidebottom. Dr Harry Sidebottom teaches ancient history at Lincoln College, Oxford. Since publication of Fire in the East in 2008, he has written and published a novel every year, all of which have been Sunday Times bestsellers. His Warrior of Rome series alone has been published in 14 countries. The Mad Emperor Heliogabalus and the Decadence of Rome came out in October and immediately became a Spectator Book of the Year. The Daily Mail described it as a rollicking read and the Telegraph said of it, We are used to being told that the historical truth is less exciting than the myth, but as the Mad Emperor demonstrates, this is one of those rare cases when the history does not fall short. Harry Sidebottom presents a picture of 3rd century Imperial Rome that is, if anything, wilder than the popular imagination. I enjoyed it very much too, absolutely fascinating. We will talk, obviously, a lot about Heliogabalus, but if we can just pull back a little bit, first of all, when we think of Roman emperors and the more decadent and the more outrageous of them, we might think of Nero or Caligula. We don't think of your man. Why is that?
2: Well, I think Heliogabalus has been almost completely forgotten in the modern world because I think the sources are so obscure. And we've got quite good sources for him, but they're not Suetonius, they're not Tastus, they're not the ones that are taught in schools, taught in undergraduate courses. Cassius Dio, Herodian, the Augustan history are in their own way fascinating texts, but very few people study them. And I think that's why he's been largely forgotten.
0: In the book, you jump between them quite a lot and you question them quite a lot. So how reliable are they? How much can we really know?
2: Well, that's the million dollar question. Two of them, Cassius, Dion, and Herodian, were contemporaries. However, they're both writing after he's dead and they have nothing good to say about him at all. The third source of Augustan history is... Actually, one of my favourite classical texts because it's one of the weirdest. It's a series of biographies of emperors, claims to be written by six men around 300 AD, actually written by one man 100 years later. We have no idea why this unknown author foisted this great literary fraud on the world. The Augustan history lives really are much more like historical novels than history. So I think at every step of the way, you have to question absolutely everything any of them say about him. And some scholars just give up and sort of shrug their shoulders and go, well, we can never approach the truth. That strikes me as very reductionist. And I think it is worth trying to dig into these sources once you know their agendas, their biases, and try and work out something about the reality of him and his reign.
0: And the reality of him. OK, then let's let's drill down to the facts before we, we go into the speculation, what we know about his birth and his death and a little bit about his reign.
2: When he comes to the throne, he's 14. He is from a family, a Syrian family, from the city of Emesa, which is modern Homs. But his family are Roman citizens, they're high status, His father's a government servant. He's probably actually born in Rome. And, quirkily enough, he probably spent four years of his childhood in York, in Ibaracum.
0: Yes, he's a Yorkshire man. He's really (laughs) a a Yorkshire Yorkshire man. man.
2: And then at the age of 14, he and his family have, immediate family, have returned to Emisa, to Syria, when his grandmother engineers a military revolt. It has, on paper, no chance of succeeding at all. Against all the odds, it does. He's put on the throne... Presumably his grandmother, Julia Miser, who's a terrifying piece of work, what she wanted was a nice, quiet, docile puppet ruler. Unfortunately, what she got was Heliocabalus. And he's an emperor who almost seems to go out of his way to alienate every group in Roman society in every way he can. I mean, he, he humiliates the Senate, kills a large number of them. He ignores the army... He escapes the clutches of the palace staff. He does give the plebs of Rome lots and lots of games and shows, but they don't still, still don't seem to like him. He marries at least four, possibly seven women in his four-year reign, at vast expense to the taxpayer. He also marries at least one man. He is a religious zealot for the god of his hometown, his family's hometown, Emesa, And he replaces Jupiter, the head of the gods, with Elagabal, symbolised by a large black conical stone. It's hard to imagine anyone a madder emperor, and he he deserves, he's (laughs) had to be better known.
0: (laughs) It's got everything, his story, and and he did all that. I mean, he's only on the the throne for how many years?
2: He lasts four years, and after four years, his grandmother's had enough of him, and she organises a coup and replaces him with another grandchild of hers, his cousin, Alexander Severus. Just to emphasise how tough Julia Miser was, it takes a certain sort of woman to watch one of her grandsons and one of her daughters being killed, essentially, on her orders, stripped naked, decapitated, mutilated, and then their corpses dragged with iron hooks through the streets in front of her.
0: So he is, what, 15 when he comes to the throne? 15, 14? About
2: 14. Is that unusual
0: for somebody so young to be an emperor?
2: It is unusual, but it's not unprecedented in that quite often... People are put on the throne at ages that we wouldn't consider anyone should be given any responsibility at all. Not quite as weird for the Romans as for us as you tended to take the toga virilis, the toga of manhood, at 14. And, of course, they have no concept of adolescence, so you're meant to go straight from child to man. So for them, slightly less weird than it would be for us.
0: And remind us just how powerful that role was.
2: Ultimately, totally powerful. All the best jurists would argue the will of the emperor's law. The laws do not apply to the emperor. He can make and unbreak law whenever he wants. And of course, if you give a 14-year-old that sort of power over most of the known world, what could possibly go wrong?
0: And it's, as you've alluded to, quite turbulent times politically. Any more turbulent than it usually is?
2: It is a turbulent time. It's not as turbulent as it'll get a generation after Heliocabalus, and that's when you hit the third century crisis, when the average reign of an emperor goes down from roughly nine and a half years to about 18 months. He's just at the edge of the beginning of the third century crisis.
0: And why do you think he is, I mean, it's a big question, why do you think he is like he is? You, you've alluded to the fact that he's a teenager, but he, he's also, dare we say, traumatised by some of the things, because he does see some quite horrible things as he's growing up.
2: Yeah, and in our terms, he's had an incredibly traumatic childhood. He's seen a large number of his family killed. It may be partly that, and partly his youth, but I think the real two keys to understanding him are, one, his sexuality which we can talk more about, which is very unusual for his time and his culture. And the other is religion. When his family took him back to the city of Emesa, they appointed him head priest of this god, Elagabal. That was the turning point in his life. I mean, he becomes an absolute devotee of this god. And almost everything that happens in his reign, everything he does, with the exception of his sexuality, the religion is behind it.
0: Tell us a little bit more about elagabal because you, you do write about it. It's quite hard for us in this day and age to get our head around this, perhaps.
2: Very hard. I mean, whether you're practising a religious person or not, we tend to live in a monotheistic world where we, there's just a god of whatever sort. And of course, for the Romans, there were many gods. They're polytheistic. Now, his god was unusual because it wasn't anthropomorphic. There's not a cult statue that looks like a powerful, heavily bearded man or a gorgeous youth. It's a big black stone. The religion of Elagabal is fascinating. We know a lot about its externals. We know what the temple looked like. We know what the stone itself looked like. We know what the chariot it was carted about in looked like. From Herodian especially, the ancient Greek writer, we know a lot about its ceremonies. What we actually lack totally is the interior life of the religion. We know that Elagabar was a sun god, but beyond that, we don't know about its its cosmography, what did it do for devotees. We have no hint. The interesting thing about the religion for me is that the Romans were usually very accepting of other gods, and indeed, they'd worship inanimate stone objects before, and they were quite accepting of Eastern gods usually too. So one of the fascinating things is, why were they so anti-this god? And I think the real answer is, because the emperor ignores all the duties of being an emperor for those of being a priest of this god. And then he gives an order that his god, Elagabal, should be invoked by all magistrates before Jupiter, the king of the gods. And when you start messing with traditional state religion in that way, then you are going to alienate the vast majority of what I've called in the book, deliberately anachronistically, your constituents.
0: And you mentioned we know what the religion looks like. We're going to hear from Caroline Vout in just a moment about uh, Greek and Roman bodies. What about Heliogabalus himself? Do we know what he looked like?
2: We do. We have coins and we have various portrait busts. He's a youth. What he looks like really depends on the filters the viewers have had. Because he comes. his family come from Syria. We've, in Victorian times, it was quite often said, you know, he looks very, very oriental or near eastern. But there again, Oscar Wilde looked at a famous bust of Heligabalus, which is in the Capitoline Museum in Rome, and decided he looked, in the words of Oscar Wilde, like a charming Oxonian of the better sort. (laughs) He's said by Herodian the Contemporary to be extremely good-looking. Whether the portrait busts appear good-looking to us, I think, is really down to our criteria of what is or isn't good-looking.
0: Thank you, Harry. We'll come back to hear more about Heliogabalus in just a moment, but let's hear now from Caroline Vaut. Caroline is Professor of Classics at the University of Cambridge and Director of the Museum of Classical Archaeology. Her first book, Antinous, the Face of the Antique, won the Art Book Award and she has published and written extensively over the years on classical life. Exposed, the Greek and Roman body, came out in September. The Literary Review called it spectacular and the historian Peter Frankopan said it was a triumph from start to finish. When I spoke to Caroline, I started by asking her why classics, what the appeal of that subject was for her. Gosh,
1: I have no idea really originally anyway. I mean, I came to Cambridge when I was 18 as an undergrad because I thought what I really loved was Latin and for me, the reason I did Latin was because it was the ultimate act of rebellion. Because really. <laughs> <laughs> my, you know, my parents, were, my dad was a builder. You know, the last thing he wanted his daughter to do was do Latin. Some
0: people used to go behind the bike sheds and smoke, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah.
1: And um, but actually, when I came here, I really discovered almost overnight that what I was really interested in was visual culture, art history, cultural history. And so it was that, really, that then forged me on the journey that I'm still on.
0: And talking about uh, physicality, Greek and Roman body, this is what your book is about. When we think of those bodies, I suppose we think of sculptures or drawings, and we think of a very well-proportioned, quite buff body, actually. Was that their ideal? In some ways it was. I mean, that's
1: why that's become our ideal. I mean, you go to Cambridge North Station, you step off the train and what do you see? A giant hulking Hercules that's modelled on exactly one of these statues with a body that's just kind of incredible. And yes, I mean, they made bodies like that for sanctuary spaces. They dedicated them to the gods. They put them up in their gymnasia. So, yeah, they very much were the ideal. But even the Greeks and Romans knew they were an ideal.
0: What about the bodies that didn't fit that idea? What about the bodies of the elderly or the overweight or the disabled?
1: Even if it's visual culture you're talking about, back in ancient Greece and Rome, it wasn't just that they made the statues we've just been talking about, those buff bodies. And you've got to remember that they were now white, shiny white, whereas in antiquity they'd have been covered in paint, so they would have had a rather more urgent relationship with life. Sculptors were also making terracottas. They were making, um, certainly after the death of Alexander the Great, a much broader (laughs) range of body types. And then, of course, beyond the art, there's the real flesh and blood bodies. And what they thought of those, we get a sense of from their literature, medical texts and things which still survive and they like us had anxieties about getting old. Life expectancy of course was a lot lower on average in antiquity.
0: You talk about people trying to transform their bodies in ways that we might recognize today like effectively going to the gym.
1: Yeah I mean in the ancient Greek world the gymnasium was part of elite culture And there was very much a sense, a strong sense of, you know, healthy body, healthy mind. And if you wanted to be a citizen male, you had to have a body that fit that part. You know, you get stories about aged Roman senators making sure that they take time every day to have a bath and to play a ball game and to take some exercise because they understood that that was part of keeping fit and staying sane.
0: And when we talk about emperors and people in the public eye, it was very important for them to be depicted as having the perfect body.
1: Rome had been a republic, and when the first Roman emperor, Augustus, comes along, it's absolutely critical for him and his image makers to give him the kind of body that people are going to, A, want to fall down and sort of worship, but B, not think he's so godlike that they want to stab him in the back. So there's this really delicate balance of kind of, the imagery needs to give the general public a sense of just what is an emperor. And the body is a crucial part of this, as crucial in some ways as the head. You know, the head gets put on coins that get circulated far and wide, but Augustus's body is going up all over the place, clad in armour, put in a toga so as to make him look like a priest and sort of modest and a mediator with God and all of them quite beautiful. Augustus dies in his 70s looking wizened and you know with gappy teeth and not much hair and yet his images he never looks more than 40. He stays youthful and gorgeous in his images and therefore increasingly as you move through his reign must seem more and more godlike as everybody understands he's ageing but his imagery stays looking so pristine.
0: Do you find uh, similarities between the culture of then and the culture of now? I'm thinking of, is that any different from Kim Kardashian photoshopping the images that she puts on Instagram?
1: In some ways, it's not. You know, inevitably, their bodies are in all sorts of ways like our bodies. (laughs) Their insecurities are like ours. You might think that all of them would be wanting to make themselves look better too. I mean, what's interesting, I suppose, is that before Augustus, Romans actually put a premium on in their portraiture looking really anything but airbrushed, wrinkled and old and experienced and anything but Greek. I mean, that's a filter too. It's just a different kind of filter, I suppose. But in other ways, their bodies are completely different from ours and, and the world in which Augustus is functioning is very different from the world of Kim Kardashian. Because social constructions and constraints and physical constraints and constructions are different. And I suppose it's those tensions really that the book's interested in, the similarities and also the differences.
0: Yes, I mean in the book you you bring in other issues almost to make the reader think about their own mortality as well. That's
1: very important to me. I, I wanted the bodies to be the protagonists in the book, which is why actually I didn't order it or organise it chronologically, strictly speaking, because if you do that, then events lead, people lead. And I didn't want that. I wanted bodies to be at the forefront, and I wanted experience to be at the forefront. And I wanted to nudge all the time towards having our readers think about their own bodies by, in some ways, writing a book, the agenda of which was to raise pertinent questions without necessarily telling everybody what they should think about their own bodies, because who am I to say that?
0: And given all the photoshopping, (laughs) effective classical photoshopping, how can we know what these people look like? I mean, particularly the people who we talk about in reference to history. Can we ever get a sense of really what those people look like?
1: You can sometimes. I mean, archaeologists are doing wonderful things with scanning Roman period mummies from Egypt, for example, and being able to reconstruct the cranium and get a sense of what the child looked like beneath his mummy portrait. But you're right that actually for most of these figures, for somebody like Augustus that we were just talking about, you've got images on the one hand that never age, and then you've got something like Suetonius's biography that's written a long time actually after Augustus dies, which is claiming to give you a sense of what he really looked like. But actually, he's just, like everybody else, trying to get a sense of what the real flesh and blood emperor might have looked like beneath the portraits. Because ultimately, you're in a world in which there are no cameras, there are no high-speed trains. So the majority of people in the Roman Empire have no idea what the emperor looks like. He really is his image in a really very insistent
0: way. And of all the images you looked at, do you have a favourite? There is
1: a terracotta torso, which is about as far away from the shiny white marbles on pedestals that you could think of. And it's a terracotta torso that is open in the middle. It has a gaping hole to reveal what looks like innards represented inside. That was made as a votive offering and put up in a sanctuary in Italy, maybe by somebody who had tummy ache always saying thank you to the god for curing them of their tummy ache these kind of terracottas are wondrous you get some others which are just sort of body parts so a hand or a womb or a you know depending on what you wanted curing or what you were thanking god for curing you for i think they're wonderful because i get migraines a lot and um you know when you have a migraine you just feel like a throbbing head and so I love these kind of terracotta body parts mm. that are sort of fragmented because it is really a very a very eloquent plea to the gods to make you feel whole again. So I think that would be my favorite object today.
0: And Exposed the Greek and Roman Body by Caroline Vout is published by the Welcome Collection. We're speaking on bookmark today to Harry Sidebottom about his book The Mad Emperor Heliogabalus and the Decadence of Rome. Harry, let's just take a, a brief wander through some of the greatest hits, as it were, of Heliogabalus, whether they're true or not, the myths and the reality. So let's start with, actually, the one that you start the book with, which is this rumour that he had a banquet where he watched people be smothered, well, suffocated to death with flower petals. True or false?
2: Ultimately false, unfortunately, but a fascinating story. The Roses of Heliogabalus story starts with the Augustan History, which was written about 400 AD. The unknown author of that took the idea of sprinkling things unexpectedly on your dinner guests, if you're the emperor, from Suetonius's life of Nero. Nero merely sprinkled perfume on them. The Augustan History decided that wasn't really exciting enough, and it added the lethality of sprinkling them with violets and other flowers and suffocating them to death. The Augustan history story lies behind... It's, of course, the inspiration of the famous painting by Sir Lawrence Alma-Tadema in the 1880s, The Roses of Heligabalus, where you have the young emperor, who actually looks remarkably sort of uninterested in the fact that his dinner guests are all dying in front of him. Every subsequent construction of viewing of Heliogabalus is through the filter of that painting. It's a great story. Ultimately, unfortunately, no, it's not true.
0: Although... He did have some pretty out-there banquets.
2: He did have some very out-there banquets. It's hard to tell which are true and which aren't. Most of the banquet stories come from the Augustan history, which was on a really good creative riff of imagining the weirdest banquets an emperor could have. My favourite, apart from killing your dinner guests with rose petals, is releasing um, wild animals amongst them and getting vast amusement from looking how frightened they are until they realise the lions and tigers are actually tame. It certainly would have been fun having um, dinner with him. Well, no, fun's probably the wrong word. Absolutely (laughs) terrifying. (laughs)
0: Terrifying. What about this one? He rode a chariot that was pulled by naked women. True or false?
2: Now, that's a trickier one to answer. In fact, there is no answer. Initially, people would go, oh, it's obviously false. The story comes in the Augustan history. Then there is ancient visual evidence. There's a cameo, carved gemstone, which shows a young man who's also naked who is macrophalic, as art historians delicately say, (laughs) driving a chariot pulled by just two naked women. And it has an enigmatic Greek inscription which means something like the stranger conquers. This looks like a reference to the story of Heligabalus. Is the gemstone inspired by the story? Or is the story inspired by the gemstone? Or are they both just inspired by the incredibly eccentric mode of travel employed by Heligabalus? I leave the option open in the book, but I do tend to nudge the reader towards the no, it's not true.
0: And you touched on this before. He was married twice to a Vestal Virgin.
2: Same Vestal Virgin, yes. What could be more shocking? After all, the Vestals are... There's a hint in their title they have to remain virgins for 30 years. They tend the sacred fire of Rome, the sacred hearth of Rome. If they stop being virgins, then they should be buried alive, and the man they've had sex with should be killed in an archaic and hideous way. And here's the emperor marrying one of them. It looks like, again, it's to do with his own religion. He's said to have announced that what could be more fitting than the high priest of Elagabal should marry the high priestess of Rome. Together they'll produce godlike children. As a piece of political PR, it's appalling because it poses pretty much an existential threat to the safety of Rome the sacred fire of Rome is being defiled. Just because Roman religion is weird to us, we shouldn't assume it was not thoroughly believed in by the majority of contemporary Romans. And also the fact he does marry at least four times in four years, maybe seven times. It's very unsettling for the elite families he's marrying into and then divorcing their daughters.
0: We mentioned the Vestal Virgin. Another is reputed to have married a man.
2: Yes, he is said to have married a Chariteer called Heracles. a lot of modern scholars just dismiss this as an invention but in fact there's quite a backstory. story nero has married taking the role of the bride it looks to me as if this is quite a believable story given heliogameter sexuality and given this sort of almost tradition of in roman terms deviant marriages
0: and you challenge in the book the idea that homosexuality was widely accepted in Rome and that nobody would have battered an eyelid. You say that actually it's much more complex than that.
2: I think it is much more complex than that. Our modern constructions of sexuality, heterosexual, bisexual, homosexual, just don't really fit the Greek and Roman world. No word in Latin or Greek translates any of them. It's, it's far less about the gender of the person you have sex with, and we're really talking here about adult male members of the elite because they're the ones we know most about, it's, so it's not the gender of the people you like to have sex with, it's much more your role within the sexual act, whether you're active or passive. So being active is thoroughly manly and good, being passive is thoroughly not good. And our boy openly flaunts his enjoyment of the passive role in male-male sex.
0: And it's also what happens to the men that he has relationships and marries. He promotes them to quite senior positions.
2: Yeah, he thinks of promoting Heracles to being his Caesar, his his heir and successor. And it takes his terrifying grandmother, Julia Miser, to persuade him this is actually a really, really bad idea. He does promote quite a lot of men, or his regime promotes a lot of men, from the lower classes to positions of power. Most of it is actually nothing to do with sexuality. It's their perceived loyalty that the new regime, especially when it starts, is very short of upper-class elite supporters. And so they will promote anyone they think will stay online on message with them.
0: And we're talking a lot about what what he does. Do you get any sense of what he was like?
2: It's back to religion. I think this is the big turning point in his life. It's all about this god, Elagabal, and worshipping him. And it's all about a flamboyant sex life which is unsurprising for a youth of 14 to 18 who can do anything he likes with anyone and a lot of partying he's very very big into partying
0: well uh, let's hear your second choice of music now which is Life's a Long Song by Jethro Tull why this one
2: I'm, I'm a sad old hippie and I really like uh, 70s prog rock and this I like Ian Anderson also always liked him because he sings rock songs in an English accent and doesn't pretend to be American When you've fallen awake And you take stock of the new day
1: Bookmark with Lee Chambers On Cambridge 105 Radio
2: With Heffers Bookshop The great Cambridge bookseller Since 1876
0: And we're talking on Bookmark today to Harry Sidebottom about the Mad Emperor Heliogabalus and the decadence of Rome. And Harry, you've alluded to the women behind the throne, as it were. So who is motivating this lust for power? Is it him? Do you get any sense that actually he he wants to be top dog or is it more about the women behind him who are really muscling into positions of power?
2: Well, it's certainly the women behind him, his grandmother mainly and to an extent his mother, who put him in power. I think once he's in power, he thoroughly enjoys it. The role of his grandmother especially does raise that whole thing about women's agency in the Roman Empire. They can't hold, they can't command armies or they shouldn't and they they can't be magistrates. However, his reign does show that women could be incredibly important in politics but they have to act via their menfolk. Having said which as far as one can see, all the real politics, sensible politics, as far as there any in his reign, is done by his grandmother, not by him. She's motivated by, we're told, a fear of losing status. Her family's been connected to the imperial family for a generation now. Losing status, losing, well, in Latin, dignitas. I mean, to us, dignity is a pretty dubious concept. It sounds a bit pompous. It's something you stand on. For them, it was you know, the centre of their self-fashioning. The life of Hilly I what do I want to do with this, not only tell his story, but he makes a really good window to view big themes like the power of women, the role of the emperor, religion, sexuality, and racism, because you know he, he's Syrian. And that's one of the things that's held against him. It makes a wonderful sort of prism to view all these things through.
0: And being an emperor, it was quite a tricky balancing act, wasn't it? It wasn't an easy role.
2: The Emperor Tiberius described his role as like holding a wolf by the ears. I, with deliberate anachronism, look at the four main constituencies an emperor had to at least please stay on side with, and that's the Senate, the upper class, the plebs of Rome, the army, and what's called the Familiar Caesaris, the staff of the imperial palace. The problem for any emperor is all these four groups want you to do and be a very different sort of emperor. So the soldiers, say, want a bloke with a buzz cut and a short, stubbly military beard. They want him marching with them, giving them money. Now the soldiers want an emperor who sits on the ground and eats porridge with them. This is anathema, say, to the Senate. What the Senate want is a first amongst equals, a toga-clad, dignified man who fulfils the role that they would call it the cavilis princeps, a sort of civilised, gentle prince, there again, the plebs they want a man of the people, they want someone who puts on shows, who banters with them, enters into the spirit of their entertainments. And the final group, the palace staff from Kaisaris, what they want is a sort of distant, hierocratic figure surrounded by rituals created by them. And so, what do you get with Heliogabalus? He actually managed to alienate all of them, <laughs> takes some doing, so humiliates and kills senators, takes advice from lower class people, so the senate hate him. Once he's on the throne, he totally ignores the army as far as he can. He escapes the clutches of the palace staff, replaces their rituals with ones of his own devising which are about religion. He does give loads to the plebs of Rome, but they they don't seem to actually it doesn't seem to win them round, partly because they don't like his religion and partly because he spends the last year of his reign persecuting and sidelining his own cousin. And the plebs seem very touchy, almost sentimental about young members of the imperial family who they see as being persecuted by the emperor. It's a really tricky board game to try and satisfy all four constituencies. Heliogabalus seems to make no effort to satisfy any of them. And in a way, it's a miracle he lasts four years.
0: Well, yes, I don't think we're giving anything away when we say it doesn't end well. What finally brought about his downfall?
2: And the summer before he was killed, his grandmother had persuaded him to adopt his cousin, Alexander Severus, as Caesar, as his heir. No sooner has he made the adoption than Heligabas regrets it, and he starts trying to either remove his cousin from public life or actually kill him. And it's that, I think, is the catalyst for his grandmother thinking, that's enough, he's gone too far. Because by doing that, he's become a threat to the whole dynasty, and that's a threat to her.
0: And what about his legacy, Harry? Does he leave a legacy?
2: He's got a fascinating afterlife. Throughout the rest of the Roman Empire, he's remembered as the worst of emperors, as a mad emperor. With the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, he's totally forgotten in medieval Europe, vaguely remembered in Byzantium in the eastern Mediterranean. But he he storms back with the Renaissance and the rediscovery of the classical texts of Cassius Dio Herodian and above all the Augustan history. But then his image takes this weird remodelling in the late 19th century with the decadent movement in Paris and suddenly the decadent movement discover him as one of them because they have a contempt for bourgeois morality uh, he's ideal he's remade into a 19th century Parisian sort of estate. that's where the Alma-Tadema painting drives it, its intellectual background from and it's through that that as far as he's remembered at all now he's remembered
0: it's in the immediate aftermath of his death. He's sort of chiselled, literally chiselled out of history, isn't he? He's wiped off coins and his face is obliterated on statues.
2: The weird thing about it is it, it never works. Yeah, you know, Once you chiselled someone's name off an inscription, there's that intriguing blank space. <laughs> what was there? And similarly, they seem to have um, mutilated his portraits, but left them on display quite often. Although he's chiselled off visual images, writers still write about him. So it's an interesting thing. This man, it's as if he never existed, except reminders of him are everywhere.
0: Thank you. Well, let's stay with that idea of heroes, actually, and hear from Jan Parker. Dr. Jan Parker is a senior member of the Faculties of Classics and English at the University of Cambridge. Her book, The Iliad and the Odyssey, The Trojan War, Tragedy and Aftermath, came out last year. I started by asking Jan why we should be reading these classical texts today.
3: They are texts that have come out of storytelling, that have been told by storytellers to different audiences over and over. What we get is not something that's a single text, it's something that has been retold and reframed. They raise, not answer questions, questions about what life is for, what makes life worth living What's a hero? What is the damage done by an attitude to heroism? What happens in war? What it is to suffer? Those questions spring fresh every single time. A lot
0: of these myths have been rewritten recently by women... I'm thinking of Pat Barker, Natalia Haynes, Mm. uh, Madeleine Miller, focusing on the women's experience. Have they shown us something new?
3: Oh, absolutely. Although a lot of what they're trying to show, a lot of the horror, the tragedy and the pathos, are there in the original text as well. Because of the constant questioning of the celebration of definitely a male way of ordering it. But I also think that there's something different because we want to find the truth behind the myth and somebody as fabulous as Helen of Troy. Of course we want to know that she can be seen as a goddess and a a princess royal giving the throne to Menelaus. But if you... Look at her and her position in myth, then we can think about how these people are repositioned. So, in a sense, on the one hand, we're looking for the reality, and on the other hand, we're looking at what it is to be a myth how these great female figures can be resituated and thought about. And so, they are figures of great power as well as pathos.
0: So, this will have driven some people to those myths. For the first time, mm. and some people on the back of it might be thinking about reading these. What are the challenges facing modern day readers?
3: I think it's difficult to take that kind of double positioning of someone as being both representative and recognisable of uh, conditions that we talk about, Achilles in war in Vietnam, the women a subject of war, but also to see that they do come from a period where they are accorded divine worship and they're simultaneously the sort of downtrodden position of women as always. I think that's one thing. I think the big is to get over the thought that warfare is not the great culmination of what it is to be a human being, which is the way, in a sense, the way that the Victorians and earlier read them, but that it's constantly questioned as in terms of, well, if this is all there is that makes one a powerful fighter, what is human in that? And looking at the places where these great heroes become inhuman is something that is absolutely still still relatable to and studied by psychiatrists as great case studies of damage. Those two aspects, the women of power coming from a time of matriarchy and when the throne passes through the woman rather than... Uh, having a male line and the questioning of warfare as the ultimate exertion of what it is to be valorous that old word
0: (laughs) and what about storytelling you mentioned that they can teach us a lot about storytelling what exactly can? well there's
3: never been a storyteller that's more various and more impactful than Odysseus Will he love his stories? And I was delighted that my new grandson's first board book was Odysseus' Monsters. (laughs) And he can tell you now, age three, all about Odysseus' stories. When you look at Odysseus' stories in the Odyssey, I have a big question, which is, the stories are wonderful, But what happens if you start to live within your own stories? Because none of us have understood or come to terms with Odysseus' return. He returns. Does he fly straight to his loving wife? No, he tells a lot of false stories and spends a long time in disguise until he can work out what to do. Then he takes on another story, which is the returning judge cleansing the palace and punishing the wicked in a way that we all find very distressing. It's there in the text. It's not just a modern preoccupation. So I wonder if there isn't something throughout the Odyssey about... The power of stories, the power of being able to tell your story in a way that magnetises your audience. But is there finally something a bit dangerous about that power for the individual storyteller? And then when we have Virgil, who is told by Augustus bluntly to write him a story which exceeds the Iliad and the Odyssey, that Virgil then has to retell such stories in a way that should glorify Augustus. Virgil writes a hero, Aeneas, who has to himself live in somebody else's story. What we get in an Aeneas is somebody who is constantly troubled and not being able to break away from what he has to replay. If anybody has read or heard Dido and Aeneas or seen a picture of Dido, that's the place in the Aeneid that we always start with, we always go to. This is the great tragedy of Aeneas, that he leaves his soulmate in a way that Odysseus got back to his soulmate but Aeneas has to leave him at the command of Rome and Augustus. And that tragedy really comes back to haunt the later part of the Aeneid.
0: Some people have said that Virgil and Homer are composites, if you like. Mm-hmm. They're more than one person
3: well homer i think is all importantly reframed and reframed their performance texts and back to your early earlier question about what the problem is with reading it we're not performed to so they come to us in penguin classics form as a dense epic it isn't that homer the iliad and the odyssey are great as you were saying earlier stories And that storytelling and reframing is what gives us our purchase because we can hear later voices framing this as not a celebration, but a tragedy because we end with an image of tragedy after this wonderful heroic battle. I don't really care how it came to be written. I just care that what was written down was the end of an important process. Virgil is, in a sense, right at the end of that. He's taking the stories that he grew up with, that everybody in Rome grew up with from a young age. It was their education. And then thinking, what is the problem of transferring this very individualistic Greek world of heroes into what is now going to be an empire where you're not free to act in your own way. The Iliad and the Odyssey, the
0: Trojan War, Tragedy and Aftermath is published by Pen and Sword. And Jan will be teaching a course on Virgil's Aeneid for Literature Cambridge running from the 11th of January to the 8th of February. You can find out more about that and all the other wonderful courses run by Literature Cambridge on their website, literaturecambridge.co.uk. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Harry Sidebottom about his book, The Mad Emperor, Heliogabalus and the Decadence of Rome, published by One World. Well, Harry, what's next for you? I know you're always busy.
2: I've just also published my 14th novel, which is called Falling Sky, and it's um, one in the Warrior of Rome series starring Ballista. Yeah, it was an interesting one for me to publish. I'm pleased that the reviews cover the full spectrum. Glowing review in The Times, also glowing review in The Sun. Um, (laughs) Although it was the Mad Emperor that got the It's a Belter from Talk Sport. (laughs) Um, Fully Sky, I actually wrote it three or four years ago. Didn't fit my publisher's schedule. So when I came to do the edit earlier this year, I, I was really, really worried because I hate rereading my own work. But... Actually, I loved it. It's one of the best novels I've
0: written. (laughs) It's it's kind of, you're a reader, you suddenly putting yourself in the shoes of your reader, really.
2: Yeah, probably the only time in my career I'll ever have that sort of distance and sort of sense of perspective on it. I expected it, and it is thankfully full of history because I did a lot of work, full of location. The characters have been developed over several books. But what I liked about it was the sheer pace of it and the fact it's got jokes in. The thing I really liked about it was it actually made me laugh out loud a few times.
0: <laughs> Nothing like laughing at your own jokes. But um, a question we ask all our guests on Bookmark. What are you reading at the moment?
2: I'm reading Plutarch's Life of Pompey the Great and a modern biography of which there several of Pompey the Great. And the one I'm reading at the moment is by John Leach. Because the novel I will write next will be on Pompey the Great. So I'm reading those two. And I keep hankering to pick up the new Cormac McCarthy novels because although they've got terrible reviews, I couldn't be a bigger fan of Cormac McCarthy, so that'll be interesting.
0: Saving that one. Well, we'll come back to you in just a moment, Harry, for your last choice of music. But this is, to say, the last show of this year, so have a great Christmas. We hope you get all the books you want. For our first show of 2023, the theme is women survivors, really. Our featured guest is Adele Jarras, writing as Hope Adams, talking about her novel Dangerous Women. We'll hear from Julietta Harvey on her novel Fear of Light and Anne Racklin will be talking about Zdenka Lover's memoir The Tin Ring, a memoir of love and survival during the Holocaust. But we'll sign out now, Harry, with your last choice of music, which is Downbound Train by Bruce Springsteen. Why this one?
2: Because it's got the best um, two lines ever written in a rock song. She just said, Joe, I gotta go. We had it once, we ain't got it anymore. I'm a big fan of Springsteen and this also has a lovely, lovely guitar line. I
1: had a job, I had a girl. 105. Cambridge 105 Radio.